0: The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. Well, good morning. I'm glad you're all here today. I'm sure when Zane said that he was in the Black Hills last week, you thought he was on vacation. Um, as someone who has worked with middle school and high school students, let me assure you, camp is not vacation. Um we're going to cover, we're going to talk about a lot of things today, talking about a lot of scripture. What I would really encourage you to do is, is open the, open today's event on your YouVersion app to see all of the different texts of scripture that we're going to be reading through. If you feel really comfortable flipping through your Bible, knowing where books are and all those kinds of things, this will be a great day for you. If you are not so comfortable, and that's okay, um, I still have trouble remembering where certain books of the Bible are. So we have made it simple for you by putting all of those things in our YouVersion app. I would just encourage you to follow along um, in there. Last week, we talked about the thin places that are available to us As Christians, and we define thin places as the places where heaven meets earth, where we just were able to experience more of God's presence at certain times in certain places. And we talked about what that looked like, and we talked about why that mattered, why the thin places mattered. Uh, We talked about the value of special places. Right? We talked about rhythms and rituals, and we talked about favorite prayer methods. And as we went kind of through the Old Testament, we talked about where we saw each one of those things throughout the Old Testament. And these things were really important in the Old Testament economy because that was the way that the presence of God was mediated to the people. So if I'm an Old Testament Jew and I want to encounter God, the way I'm going to encounter God for the most part... There are a few errant examples like Moses with the burning bush. But for the most part, if I'm going to experience God, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to the temple. I'm going to go to the tabernacle. I'm going to go at certain times to participate in different rhythms and rituals, and that's where I'm going to experience God. That's where I'm going to have an encounter with God, and then I'm going to pray. I'm going to do these things. I'm going to meet God in certain places, and we kind of call those thin spaces. Then we talked about the way that we encounter and experience God today as Christians. Because, see, we have, as Christians, we have the Holy Spirit who lives within us. This completely changes the dynamic of what a relationship with God looks like. So I'm no longer going to a certain place at a certain time to experience God. Prescribed for me in the writings of the Old Testament, but I can experience God just about anywhere. I can have this relationship with him, this connection with him. Almost any place can be a thin place. And we talked about how God still cares how he is worshiped, and he still cares where he is worshiped. These things still matter to him. There's a right way and a wrong way to worship God. There's a right place to worship God and a wrong place to worship God. And these things are truly only possible And any place can be a right place because of the Holy Spirit who lives within us. We worship him in spirit and in truth. That's what Jesus says. There's going to come a time, and it's already here, where you're not going to worship God in the temple. You're not going to worship God on this mountain. Remember, he's talking to the Samaritan woman. What you're going to do instead is you're going to worship God in spirit and in truth. And we talked about that because God through his spirit is always present with us the way we worship God or the way we worship period is always exposed to him right we can't we can't say we worship God one way in this place and then worship him differently outside of this place because God knows God knows what we're really worshiping whether we're here in this building or whether we are outside we are exposed to to him, The truth of our worship, regardless of what we say when we gather in this place, the truth of our worship is exposed to God because he is dwelling within us. We're not waiting for God to reveal himself through a pillar of cloud by day or a pillar of fire by night. We have access to God. We have unfettered access to God. And as we talked about throughout that message, if those things are true, then then we have to ask a question, and that question is, then why do we come here? What's the purpose of this gathering? If I can experience God, if I can experience that thin place outside of this place, what's the purpose of this? Why Why do I come here? What am I expecting to happen when I am here? What's the point? What are the implications of this gathering? So we're going to talk about that. We're going to begin to transition today and then for the next two weeks as we, as we continue to talk about worship and before we trans- transition to the book of Romans, we're going to talk about what, what does all of this mean for us? Kind of the way we typically talk about things here at Westways. what does the Bible say? What did it mean for them? And then what does it mean for us? And we're entering into that phase right now where we're, where we're going to talk about what it means for us and not just, not just for Christians in general, but what, is, what, the, what does this look like for us as Christians at Westway Christian Church? Why do we gather together? And we might think that that's a really easy question to answer. And my hunch is if I ask that question, most of you would say we gather together to worship. That's what most of you would say. And what's interesting about that um, is, is how wrong you would be, honestly. Um, that's not why we gather. We do not gather here to worship. Um, praise team, this is not your cue. <laughs> you might have thought this was going to be a really short sermon. Um, Last week in our elders meeting, we were, as we were talking about this, Dave Robinson had just come back from Papua New Guinea, so I think he's, he's saving all of his pent-up comments that he, that he wants to make. And like pretty much like in a flurry of, of eight to 10 minutes, he talked about how we don't gather together as a church to worship. He talked about how there are seven different words in Greek for the word worship, and we don't see any of them within the context of the gathering on a Sunday morning. And like he ranted like that for about eight or 10 minutes. And then it was great. I think the next day he hopped in his car with Chris and they drove to Missouri. So I can only imagine what he's going to be like when he gets back. Um... So then if the, if, if the question is what are then we gather to do, if it's not worship, what is it? See, we have to look to the Bible. As Christians, we take our cues from the Bible. If we look back at Exodus uh, chapter 3, there's this interaction between God and Moses at the burning bush. And God tells Moses to return to Egypt and tell Pharaoh to allow the Hebrews to travel on a three-day journey into the wilderness to, it's not to worship, but it's to make a sacrifice to the Lord, which is really kind of interesting because as I've just been thinking about this and, and my own thoughts and ideas of, of what we gather to do, like we would, I think, have this notion, this idea, that the reason the Israelites, the Hebrews, were going into the wilderness was to worship God. But in fact, the text says they're going there to sacrifice. And like this ought to be, a, this ought to start telling tell us something. This ought to be a cue for us. And the rest of the first five books of the Old Testament all deal with what those offerings and sacrifices are to look like. When they're to happen, where they're to happen, why they are to happen. That's what we see in these first five books. What do these offerings and sacrifices look like? And then throughout the rest of the Old Testament, we see all of these different encounters with God. Some of them are individual encounters with God. Some of them are group encounters with God. And thinking about and reading those stories and reflecting on them, at every encounter with God in the Old Testament, there was at least one of three things that happened. Sometimes it's only one of these things; three things, sometimes it's two, sometimes it's all three. But one of these three things are found in each and every encounter with God in the Old Testament. The first one is this, encounters with God in that thin place in the Old Testament left a mark. Left a mark. Here's the second thing. Encounters with God in these thin places gave the people a choice to make. And the third thing is these encounters in the thin places were an experience of God's grace. So as we read through the Old Testament, we see there's a mark. There is a choice. There's an experience of God's grace. Let's look in Genesis chapter 32. This is um, verse, beginning of verse 22. During the night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two servant wives, and his 11 sons and crossed the Jabbok River with them. After taking them to the other side, he sent over all his possessions. This left Jacob all alone in the camp, and a man came and wrestled with him until dawn began to break. When the man saw that he would not win the match, he touched Jacob's hip and wrenched it out of its socket. Then the man said, let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. What is your name? He replied, Jacob. Your name will no longer be Jacob, for now on you will be called Israel, for you have fought with God and with men and have won. Please tell me your name, Jacob said. Why do you want to know my name? The man replied, then he blessed Jacob there. Jacob named this place Peniel, which means face of God, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been spared. The sun was rising as Jacob left Peniel, and he was limping because of the injury to his hip. Do you see how this encounter with God left a mark on Jacob? He was physically impacted. He was physically affected by this encounter. And then it goes on to say, Even today the people of Israel don't eat the tendon near the hip socket because of what happened that night when the man strained the tendon of Jacob's hip. So that's even more interesting. This encounter with God such left a mark on God's people that they do not eat a portion of the hip socket. See, this left a mark. This encounter with God left a mark. And I would say this encounter with God was a demonstration of God's grace. Because this angel, this being, could have beat Jacob in the fight. And God demonstrated grace. If we flip into, further into the Old Testament, we see Isaiah chapter 6. This is verses 1 through Six again. I want you to listen. I want you to listen for these three things. It was in the year that King Uzziah died, and I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne, and the drain of his, train of his robe filled the temple. Attending him were mighty seraphim, each having six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces, with two, they covered their feet, and with two, they flew. They were calling out to each other. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Their voices shook the temple to its foundations, and the entire building was filled with smoke. Then I said, this is Isaiah, it's all over. I'm doomed, for I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips, and I live among a people with filthy lips. Yet I have seen the king, the Lord of heaven's armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal he had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. He touched my lips with it and said, see this coal has touched your lips. Now your guilt is removed and your sins are forgiven. See we have this mark that Isaiah has this encounter with God and this burning coal comes and touches his lips. There's a mark. Then I heard the Lord asking, whom should I send as a messenger to this people who will go for us? See, there's the decision to make, right? We see this encounter with God and, and, and Isaiah is marked by God. And then Isaiah is given a choice. Who will I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here I am. Send me. See, Isaiah has this encounter with God and he's marked, and he's given a choice. And I would even say he's given a grace of God. He's a man of unclean lips, and what does God do? Does Does he punish him? Does he condemn him? No, he demonstrates grace by purifying his lips. So we're starting to see here, as we look at all of these different things in Scripture, What happens when there's an encounter with God? Which forces us to ask the question, what happens when we encounter God? If we flip over to the New Testament, this is Acts chapter 9. We're going to talk more about this in a few weeks when we begin our series on Romans. This is Acts chapter 9 verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. So that's what they called Christians. Christians weren't actually called Christians yet at this point in history. They were called the way. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back To Jerusalem in chains. So, this is Saul. We now know him as Paul. He wrote a ton of the New Testament. And prior, like in this moment, our experience of Saul is a persecutor of the church, an arrester of Christians. As he was approaching Damascus on his mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. See, we have this encounter with God, and we have a choice. The men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but they saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. Do you see how Saul is marked here in this encounter with God? So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. Now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision. Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, go over to Straight Street to the house of Judas. When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying to me right now. I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. Do you see how Ananias has a decision? How this encounter with God gives Ananias a decision, gives him a choice? But Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. And he is authorized by the leading priests to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. But the Lord said, go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings as well as to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Notice that God has not done marking Saul. If we were to read through the rest of the New Testament, Paul is going to give these lists that talk about the ways that he is marked by God. So Ananias went and found Saul. He laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight. Do you see the grace in this encounter? Then he got up and was baptized. Afterward, he ate some food and regained his strength. See, encounters with God, they leave a mark. Encounters with God give a choice. Encounters with God are experiences of God's grace. And as we read through the New Testament, we see how the church embodies these things, how the church lives them out. What does it look like for a church to live in the thin place of an encounter with God and now we're starting to answer the question right why why do we gather what do we do here what's the purpose of this thing how do we experience God if you were to flip a few chapters back in Acts chapter 2 we see this laid out quite well for us This is verse 42 and beyond. So what's happened just before this is 3,000 people have become Christians. Don't miss that. There is no verse 41.5 that says, and everyone just went home. Everyone just went about their life as if nothing had changed. Everyone just went back to work and lived their lives, and then when they died, they all went to heaven. There is no intermediate verse between 41 and 42. We see 3,000 people being saved. Verse 42, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They, what's interesting, it says, it says they worshiped together in the NLT. And if Dave, not my cue, if Dave Robinson were here, that word worship is the completely wrong English word in the NLT for this text. What's really going on there is they met together at the temple each day. They met in homes for the Lord's supper and they shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And he said, the Lord added to their fellowship, those who are being saved. See, the people didn't get together as a church to worship. They got together to be a demonstration of what Christ was to the rest of the world. And when we read through these things, surely there were people who were marked. If I'm going to give up my possessions, if I'm going to sell my property, to help meet the needs of other people. That's going to leave a mark, right? That's going to impact and affect my life. If I'm going to live in these ways, I'm going to be a demonstration of God's grace. If I'm going to do these things, I'm going to be different. If we were to flip back to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, This is an instruction. Paul writes this. I'm sorry. We don't know that Paul wrote Hebrews. That's just what I think. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And then verse 25 says, and let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. See, when we read through the New Testament, we're st- we get this picture, we get this image of what the church is to be about. Church not defined as building. Church not defined as organization. Church defined as people. What kind of people are we to be? What are the kinds of things that are going to Mark us. And these things also require a choice, don't they? If someone has need, then I have a choice of whether or not I'm going to sell my possessions. I have to make a decision about whether or not I'm going to interact with other believers and I'm going to do the good works that have been presented for me. And then the last one, and If there's a text I've talked about more than any other, I'm not sure I know what it is. It's Ephesians 4, beginning at verse 11. Now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and pastors, and teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. And don't we see those three things in this text? Encountering God together as the body is going to leave a mark on us. It's going to influence us in certain ways. It's going to give us a choice. Do I want to be mature? Do I want to remain immature? Do I want to be influenced when people try to trick me? Or do I want to be so grounded in scripture? See, these are choices that we have to make. These are daily choices. This is the daily grind of being a Christian, is making decisions, making choices that the Spirit sets before us to make. Is each part does its own special work. See, that's a choice. When we encounter God, God sets before us a decision Do we want to be a part of what God is calling us to do, or do we not want to be a part of what God is calling us to do? These are choices. This is the way that God operates. And now we're starting to answer the questions as to why the gathering matters. As we read through the Bible, what we're eventually going to see is there are limits. There are limits to what we are going to experience in our lives if it is just Jesus and me. There are limits. There's a ceiling. If my relationship with God is just about Jesus and me, at some point I'm going to hit a ceiling and I will not be able to experience the fullness of God. Because as Christians, we're called to be in community with one another. This isn't just about me and Jesus. And in Christ Jesus, let me be clear, we have our salvation. Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough for my salvation. We have everything that we need. Christ is the fulfillment of the law. Christ is the totality of who God is. We have all of those things in Jesus. And yet, as we've been reading today, we're put in this place for a reason. There is something here for us. As I reflected on this, Jesus gets asked, what is the greatest commandment? What does Jesus say? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. But that's not all he says, is it? See, if all it was was Jesus and me, then that would be enough. But Jesus says something else. He says, you must love your neighbor as yourself. Love God fully, all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. See, my Jesus and me relationship is only going to get me so far because God has more for me than just that. This is not one or the other. This is love God and love your neighbor. Because here's the thing. If it's just Jesus and you, and you're you know your church is the lake, your church is the golf course. For me, my church is the running trail. Right, when I limit it to those things, how can I possibly love my neighbor? How can I serve my neighbor? How can I serve other people when I reduce my relationship to God to just me and Jesus? And the New Testament is filled with letters and they essentially all say the exact same thing. The way that you are demonstrating your love to one another as believers is to be an example for the way you demonstrate love for non-believers. But all of these New Testament letter writers are telling their churches, and we just have to remember this so much, that when we read Paul's letter to the Galatians, Paul is writing to a church. It's easy for us to forget that. It's easy for us to read the issues that the churches are having and then to think that Paul is writing all of these things to to all of the wicked pagans in those communities. To love one another and serve one another and disciple one another, and meet one another's needs. No, Paul is telling these things to the churches. He's reminding them that this is what their call is. He's telling them these things because they're not doing them. So as we read through these things, we have to ask ourselves, like, do we think we have it all figured out? If the people who had apostles founding their churches got it wrong, 2,000 years later, how wrong do we have our own interactions and discipling behaviors? How likely is it that we fall into the same traps that these New Testament churches are? So these letters are written the way that you demonstrate love to one another as a church is to be a demonstration of the way that you are to love those who aren't followers of Christ. People should be able to to peer in, like metaphorically, non-Christians should be able to stand at our doors and peer in and see the ways that we love one another and desire to be a part of that because we are loving one another so well. But here's what typically happens. Non-Christians are peering into our lives. They're watching us on social media. And they're seeing us argue and bicker and fight and be just as, just as, irritated with the things of our culture instead of pointing to Christ as the hope we go all in in the same way that the world does and non-Christians are seeing that and they're like well if there's no difference between the people who are gathered here on Sunday morning at Westway Christian Church if, if they're fighting and bickering amongst themselves and, and they're calling other people names on social media and they're engaging in the hate machine just like everyone else, like if they're doing that, what, what, why would I want to be a part of that? Because I can get that everywhere else. See, these encounters with God are calling us to something more. And if we're not gathering with other believers... It's impossible for us to experience the fullness of what God has for us. That is not a theological claim about the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Jesus saves. And Jesus expects us to be in relationship with other believers to demonstrate what that salvation looks like. So when we do that together here, a world that's peering into my Facebook page or your Instagram account or wherever it is that you interact with people online, what those people ought to see is Jesus. They ought to see us propagating Jesus promoting Jesus, not all of the other things. And the problem is, is we think we're not missing out. This past weekend, um, yet Friday and Saturday, I got to spend time with, um, time with our son John in Kearney, and we had a really great visit. Um, John and I had the kind of relationship that about a month and a half ago, we started sending each other texts of, of what we were gonna talk about. Um, over like 26 hours together all of these theological conversations that we were going to have and and as it, close, it got closer to Friday i think i even added to this week like hey let's add this this week and this was one of those topics what's the purpose of the gathering and we're sitting there in his in his living room and he said um, he said you know if I, look at my, if I look at my phone, I have everything I need from an intimacy standpoint on my phone. But it's a false intimacy. See, we think that because, because we live in an era where I can send someone a text message and five seconds later I can get a response back, we think that's intimacy. Intimacy we have fooled ourselves into thinking that's relationship i know that obviously we we're online on sunday mornings and there are lots of different people who who interact with us in this way we have people who are homebound who interact with us online We've had people tell us over the past few years, like, this is the first time I've actually been able to be present in a Westway 1015, like in years. I love that so much. And then there's, there's another group of people for whom they have been lulled into thinking this is Intimacy. They have been lulled into thinking this is relationship. And if you're watching and you think I'm throwing shade at you, maybe I am. Because this is, like this is not real to a point. And this isn't about homebound people or people who aren't able to join online. This is about people for whom being present in the building like this is they've they've set, they've settled for this as a relationship with God and what happens is when we push away the gathering we miss out on the three things that make up a biblical encounter with God when we push away the physical presence we we push away the mark we push away the, the, the choice and the decision that we have. And we push away the opportunity to receive grace from one another. And we do this together. If you're wondering why do we do this, we do this. We gather because it's an opportunity for us to experience the thin place of God's presence together. That's why we do it. That's the short answer. That's why we gathered together. Because relationships force us out of comfort zones, and they bring the real us into the light. See, that's what it means to worship God in spirit and truth, to be fully known. Because when we're in this space together, or when we're in small group together, or when we're serving together, or when we're doing things together as Christians, the real us gets exposed. I think I've said this before. When I was in student ministry and we would do a week-long trip, it took about 48 hours for me to figure out who the real person was. Because usually people can only wear a mask for about 48 hours. People can only cover up who they really are for about 48 hours, especially when you're at church camp with a bunch of middle schoolers who aren't getting any sleep. It's not even going to take 48 hours. I would love taking adults on mission trips with me because it would take about 48 hours to find out who the real adult was behind the mask that they wore. And that would be true for me. They, they would know who I really was after 48 hours as well. And see, when we are gathered together, our comfort zones change. And I think if we're honest, this is why we flee, we flee relationship because we don't want people to know who we really are. And the question that we have to ask is, is that really spirit and truth then? If we're hiding. If we're hiding behind a facade of what we want everyone else to think our life is really like. One of the things I love about Jesus is the way he got real with people. He asked them questions like, do you want to get well? That sounds like such a stupid question, doesn't it? But we all know people who are very comfortable in the dysfunction, don't we? We know people who are comfortable in the status quo of their lives, who never are going to change. So Jesus asks, do you want to get well? Jesus asks, what do you want me to do for you? Because he's asking them to make a choice. He's making them, he's asking them to make a decision. Do you want to be different? And this is what the church needs today. Because as I just think about the people that that I interact with, how many of us choose the comfort of our dysfunction over a life of freedom? How many of us would rather remain how we are? How many of us choose the familiarity of our sin over fear of what might happen when we give it to God? See, my sinful life can be really comfortable for me. It's a comfortable space, but it's not a thin space. God calls me to more than that. How many of us cling to the control of our time and our finances instead of trusting God with what he has given us? See, when we gather together and and we hear about sending kids to camp and we hear decisions that kids have made at camp, then we have a choice, right? We We have the opportunity to participate in that or not participate in that. And to participate in the giving of our finances is going to leave a mark. But it's going to be such an amazing grace of God. And God uses other believers to reveal to us the realities of our lives. It's the reason we're here. Because we all have blind spots. And I don't know what those blind spots are. And I need someone to reveal that to me. That's why it's called a blind spot. Someone else needs to point these things out in our lives. We must give up our dysfunctions in order to receive the fullness of God's grace. We must give up our sin in order to be freed from the fear of the unknown. We must give over control of our time and our money if we're going to fully experience what it means to trust God. In Luke 14, Jesus says this, so you cannot become my disciple without giving up everything you own. And see that everything means everything. It's not just a call for finances. And this is how we frequently hear that text. Nope, God, just, God just wants my money. God wants me to just give up everything I own. Well, as I've shared, like I have dysfunction that I own that I'm far too comfortable in. I have sin in my life that I'm far too comfortable in. There are things in my, that, I, that I spend my time on and my talent on that I am far too comfortable in. And Jesus gives us a choice. He sets this choice before us. If you really want to experience the reality of who God is, you have to give those things up, and that's going to leave our a mark on us. And nothing reveals opportunities to be more like Christ, like the presence of other people in our lives. If you're married, you know that's true. It's the way God has designed us. This is why we gather last week in our elder discussion. There's your Q team, Dave Robinson. Dave said this. It would be stupid. You can hear Dave Robinson say that, right? It would be stupid for us to not do the things we are commanded to at the expense of the things we're not commanded to. Do you hear that? Like when we read through the Bible and we see what the gathering looked like and we see what the gathering was supposed to be like, Dave Robinson's word, it would be stupid for us to not do what we're told to do at the expense of what we're not told to do. So what are, like, we've got to do those things then, right? We want to do what we're commanded to do as Christians. And what we're not commanded to do, and I would challenge you, um, we're not commanded to worship in this place. We are commanded to do certain things and several years ago we talked about the reason for our gathering and I just want to bring these up to you. Distill this down. When we gather together we gather to proclaim Jesus as Lord so there you go. We gather to proclaim Jesus as Lord. We proclaim Jesus as Lord through, this is how. How do we do that? Through our devotion to teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. See Acts 2.42. If you're wondering why we do those certain things on a Sunday morning, because the Bible says to. Those are demonstrations. That's, That's what we do, our devotion to those things. We proclaim Jesus as Lord through our encouragement and spurring one another to love and good works. If you're wondering why every other week we encourage you to serve somewhere, it's because God told us to. God told us to tell you that. God told us to spur you on. And here's the thing, spur you on like that's a that's an image, that's a graphic image. Imagine someone riding a horse with spurs on the back of their boots or better yet a stick hitting the animal to spur it on. That's uncomfortable. So if you feel uncomfortable every single time we talk about serving, good, you're supposed to. If you're not serving, you are supposed to be uncomfortable right now by us talking about this all the time. It's supposed to hurt. You should feel bad. Because God is calling you to something. God is inviting you to something. He's leaving a mark. We proclaim Jesus as Lord through equipping others to do good works and build up the body of Christ. And again, notice that worship's not on the list. So how do we do that? We preach, we sing, we pray, we give, we take the Lord's Supper together, we fellowship together. We ask ourselves some questions when we get together. Are we teaching God's word devotedly? Faithfully and engagingly. When we read God's word and we're teaching it on a Sunday morning, are we faithful to the text? To what it says, not what we want it to say. Are we encouraging relationship? Are we encouraging and spurring one another on to love and good deeds? Are we equipping one another to do good works and build up the body? Are we encouraging unity? See, these are the things that we ask ourselves as church leaders. Are we doing these things? And then we have some questions for you. That you ought to ask Am I hearing God's word devotedly? Am I listening faithfully? Am I engaged? Am I taking advantage of the opportunity to build relationships? Am I being spurred on to love and do good deeds because of what happened? Am I equipped to do good works? Am I demonstrating unity and maturity? See, these are your questions. These are all listed in you version. This is what we want you to ask. As you leave your church, you're gathering on Sunday morning. Like, did I do these things? Why was I here? And each and every Sunday, we have the opportunity to do these things together as a church. This is why we celebrate communion together. It's an opportunity for us to set aside all of the things that divide us. Where we live in town, our socioeconomic status, who we work for, where we went to college, what college we support. Seven weeks, can't wait, seven weeks to go. Right? This, is, this is an opportunity together to set aside all of those things and be unified. And if you are a Christian, like this, is, this moment is a thin place for us. It marks us. I wonder how many times you've gone to take communion and you thought to yourself, I am so unworthy of this. I cannot believe that I'm about to take communion in my current status, the nature of my heart. It gives us a choice. Will I participate anyway? Because here's the good news. Regardless of how worthy you feel or don't feel, God has given you mercy and grace. If you're a follower of Christ, it doesn't matter how you feel about this moment. And the question, the decision for you to make is, will you accept that? Will you accept that grace? Which is a demonstration of grace. Because when you participate, even when you feel unworthy, what you're saying is God's grace is enough for you. It's sufficient I'd love for you to take the bread. This is Christ's body that has been given for you. Take and eat. This one has been super glued together. Wow. This is Christ's body that's been poured out for you. Take and drink. Let's pray. Father, we we gather to proclaim your son Jesus as Lord. That's why we're here. To proclaim Jesus as Lord to, to one another in the hopes that we would be reminded that you are our Lord, because some of us need a reminder that Jesus is still in charge as we look at the as we look at our culture and our society and we truly are alive in a time when when the empire is crumbling. We need to know that we have a Lord who is firm and secure and seated on a throne that will never crumble. We proclaim that reality, and we also proclaim the reality that you sent your son Jesus to die for us that we would find hope and comfort in him, we would find fulfillment in him, and that we would go out and proclaim your son, Jesus, to others. We would do that together as one body. We thank you for this opportunity, and it's in your sons, and we pray. Amen.